there's a song that captures so incredibly well the truth of the doctrine of justification. It's a song we have just sung. And if you don't know the song or if you don't, uh, have not committed yet to memory, I would just encourage you to consider committing it to memory and humming it throughout the week. Uh, it's okay when you drive to turn off your radio from listening to music and you can just start singing uh, and singing these words. Uh, it will encourage and bless your soul. Uh, it so happens that today uh, is Reformation Day. I know some of you are thinking about something else. I don't know what you would be thinking about. But on a day like this, October 31st, uh, it is Reformation Day. So happy Reformation Day. Um, in God's providence, in God's providence, I, uh, I have not planned personally to speak on this particular Sunday about the justification uh, or about, about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But it just so happened in God's providence that we plan to be in the book of Galatians. And it so happened that our way through the preaching calendar in this book today happened to be on Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 21. It is one of the uh, most stunning passages in this book that unpacks and deals with explicitly the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So I encourage you to open God's Word to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. I will be reading to the end of this chapter, verse 21. And as we open and hear God's Word, consider what is it that leads Paul to finally address the issue of being justified by faith. This is the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. But before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so privileged to be in a generation where your word can be proclaimed to our hearts openly, freely. And we pray that it would be happening faithfully this morning. Father, we pray that the truth that we have just read would ring in our hearts, would cause us to believe and put our trust fully in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. It is in his name that we pray, being reliant on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring life to our souls. For his glory and honor we pray. Amen. Amen. If we could summarize the passage that we have just read, or the message that we're about to hear this morning, it could be four words. And I pray and hope that these four words uh, would be etched, would be ingrained, written on your heart uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit as a result of listening this message this morning. And those four words would be this. Live justified by faith. Live justified by faith. Live out the truth of being justified by faith in Christ alone. And this morning we see how the Apostle Paul is bringing about this message uh, to the churches of Galatia who have been in danger and have already fallen off the wagon, fallen into ditches of turning the gospel uh, into something else. And this morning, uh, the Apostle Paul wants to bring out the importance of living justified by faith. Uh, There are three major moments that he brings in our text this morning. Three ways that we see this point developed in our passage. And the number one, How do we live justified by faith? How do we live justified by faith? Point number one, watch out for inconsistencies in our gospel living. Watch out for inconsistencies in our gospel living. We see this in verses 11 through 14. In the first part of our text that we've read, we find out a public confrontation between Paul and Peter. What caused this public confrontation? A very basic principle that the truth of the gospel of being justified by faith in Christ alone is not simply that something that we must believe, but it must be lived out. In verses 11 through 14, we see that the truth of the gospel 
happened not to be reflected in Peter's conduct. And the problem Paul exposes in these verses is not the corruption of the gospel in terms of what Peter believed. In our text, Paul is exposing the disconnect between the truth of the gospel and the conduct and the way people were living it out. Notice what is the cause that confronts that causes Paul to confront Peter. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Do you see the, the problem that Paul saw in Peter and the rest? A disconnect between the gospel that was affirmed by Peter when Paul was in Jerusalem earlier in the previous text last that we looked at last week. Paul had been in Jerusalem and uh, Peter was among the three pillar apostles who confirmed the truth of the gospel. Peter was one of the three pillar apostles who, who shook the hand of fellowship with Paul and said, we are in this together. Now, Peter was not like the Galatians in danger of, of proclaiming a corrupt gospel. No, Peter had the gospel right. And yet, the problem Peter and Paul exposes now in this text, in this new city of Antioch where Peter came, um, is that what Peter believed and how he lived in this moment did not match at all. So, Paul brings out this principle that it is possible to believe the right gospel and yet to live a life that does not match with it. So how do we live justified by faith? We must first be watching out for inconsistencies in our gospel living. Peter is the, the apostle who confirmed the gospel in the first 10 verses of our chapter. But even he fell in the trap of living inconsistently with the truth of the gospel. And along with him, Peter was not alone. We are told that in the church of Antioch, where Peter was visiting at this time, that Barnabas, one of the other major leaders, that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, uh, even Barnabas fell in this trap. And along with them, a host of other Jews in the church of Antioch, Jewish Christians from the church of Antioch. Here we are assisting at a fairly large group of Christians who fell in this disconnect between the truth of the gospel and their conduct of life. And the Apostle Paul calls it hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Now we, we know that Peter believed the gospel. He wasn't among the fake Christians. He wasn't among the false brothers that Paul identified earlier in, in chapter 2. No, Peter was a, a genuine believer. Peter held on to a genuine gospel. 
But even these genuine believers like Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians in Antioch, even for them, there, was, there were moments, there was episodes when their conduct was not matching what they professed. Well, friends, I wonder if we hold on to this principle that the truth of the gospel must affect not nearly our minds, but also our conduct, also our way of life. Dear believers, are you watching out over your life to ensure and see whether your conduct matches the truth of the gospel? Now, we, we might wonder, what is it that would cause Peter, the great apostle, the pillar apostle, to fall in the trap of living in a way that did not match with the gospel? What was it? Look at verse 12. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. What was it that caused Peter to live inconsistently with the truth of the gospel? The fear of man. The fear of what others would say. The fear of what others would think of him. Oh, how often the fear of what other people would say leads us also to live hypocritically. The pressure from others can easily cause us to conduct ourselves in the world in a way that really does not match with the truth of the gospel. It happened to Peter. It can happen to any of us. But this does not mean that we should not worry about it. Hey, if, if it happened to Peter, I'm okay too. I'm in good company. Living inconsistently with the gospel should be confronted. Living inconsistently with the gospel should be confronted. Paul was not intimidated by the fact that Peter was one of the three pillar Jerusalem apostles. Paul had the courage to confront inconsistencies in gospel living even when it involved Peter, the major apostle. In verse 11, Paul tells us that Peter stood condemned by his conduct. In verse 13, Paul calls it hypocrisy. You know, let me ask you, would you be okay to be in a church where gospel inconsistencies were exposed? And exposed even publicly. I mean, imagine if you were at First Baptist Church of Antioch. We knew they baptized, so they must have been Baptist. Um, it, was a first bap it was a first church. So imagine you are at First Baptist Church of Antioch in the church service where Paul stands out and calls Peter out. Would you go back to that church the next Sunday? Some of us have developed such a private view of the Christian faith and the Christian life 
that we would have a hard time being in a church where gospel inconsistencies would be pointed out. Either privately or, God forbid, publicly. Because we have gotten so used to the idea of just holding our faith so closed, such the cards of our faith to be so close to our chest that it's none of, none of the business of anyone to see what I'm doing or how I'm living my Christian life. And I wonder if some of us need to be confronted in the very sort of private nature of our faith. And I need to learn from here, it is, it is okay when actually gospel inconsistencies are pointed out and confronted. And confronted even publicly. But confronting inconsistencies in the gospel should not only happen, they should be received. And this is a challenge for us. Now, the text does not tell us how Peter received Paul's correction. Especially when he was so public. How did Peter feel when, when, when Paul brought this correction to him in front of everybody? And may I say worse, imagine how Peter would have felt when he learned that it would become written. Documented. Not in some papers, archives, hidden in some church minutes. Written in the Bible. Written in the book of Galatians so that every Christian, every, in every century, in every part of the world that would ever get to read the gospel or this book of Galatians would get to hear and read that Peter, the big apostle, was confronted publicly by Paul. Would Peter think like, I am never going to talk to this guy ever before or again. I'm done with him. He and I just part ways. I want to hear nothing and have nothing to do with Paul. Is this how Peter reacted? Well, the text here does not tell us. But listen to how Peter will write about Paul at the end of his ministry in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. The apostle Peter says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, even when he speaks in them of these matters. Do you hear the endearing tone that Peter has for Paul, who had confronted him decades earlier so publicly? Acknowledge him, acknowledging him as our dear brother. Acknowledging the wisdom that God has given him. And the wisdom shown in the letters he has written, including Galatians. Which brings me to the point, are we willing to receive the confrontation of gospel inconsistencies in our lives? Here's Peter showing no evidence of resentment of bitterness towards Paul at the end of his life, even though we have an amazing testimony of a gospel confrontation between what Peter believed and what he lived. 
Friends, let me ask you, do you receive well when others point out inconsistencies of gospel living in you? This was Paul's aim of of bringing up the example of Peter to the Galatians. To encourage them to receive the correction because in this letter, Paul is correcting them. If Paul needed to correct Peter, the Galatians should be open to receive Paul's correction now through this letter. And the fact that Peter, Barnabas, and others had to be confronted about their inconsistency in gospel living should make the Galatians be open to be corrected in their errors. And I wonder if that is also the truth truth for us as well. Are we open to receive such corrections? Do you appreciate when others bring it to your attention? Or do you become defensive? Separate. Leave the church. Go to another place where such inconsistencies may be left um, around uh, to go unnoticed. It's an act of love. It's an act of faithfulness to gospel when we help each other live consistently with the truth that we believe. So how do we How do we live justified by faith? Well, first of all, we do so by watching out for inconsistencies between the truth of the gospel and the life we live. But second of all, uh, we see a, a second point of how we live justified by faith by remembering how we're justified by faith. By remembering how we're justified by faith. We see this in verses 15 through 16 where the Apostle Paul speaks to his Jewish audience. Perhaps the the Jewish brothers and sisters uh, in the churches of Galatia who were mesmerized by the Jewish false teachers. He speaks to them, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet he says, and yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. And he goes on to say, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In these two verses, Paul brings up the word justification or justified three times. It's the first time in the book of Galatians that he actually lands on this truth of being justified by faith alone. The word justifies, you may wonder, what is it? What does it mean? Uh, It's not a word that we use often in our daily vocabulary. The word justified speaks of man's great need to have his guilt absolved and to remove his condemnation before God's holy judgment. Justified speaks of man's great need to have our guilt absolved and our condemnation removed before God's holy judgment. The gospel reveals to us that our greatest need is to be made right with God. Our greatest need is not to be satisfied, fulfilled, and accomplish our big purposes in life. Our greatest need is to be made right with God. Because we have turned our backs on God 
none of us are right with him. We have broken his laws. We have, we have considered it right and pleasant to live our lives according to our own ways, apart from God. Even our ignorance of God is a rebellion against God. Even the fact that we want to live apart from God is an act of rebellion in our own ignorance of Him. But at the heart of the gospel message is this declaration of how can guilty, condemned sinners like any and all of us be made right with God? And the answer is, God provided a means to declare us righteous, to declare us justified, to declare us right with Him, even though we have done not one single right thing in His eyes. And even if we could do one right thing in His eyes, it could not undo the wrong of our past guilt. God provided a means to be made right with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only perfect human being that has ever lived on the face of the earth. Consistently. He lived a perfect life that we had to live and didn't. And yet He died the death He did not deserve, but we deserved because of our sin and rebellion. And Jesus Christ was crucified as a, as a substitute so that through his death on the cross, the penalty for our guilt and condemnation could be paid for in full. So that God now could look at our sin, at our condemnation, and declare us absolved. No more condemned. And not only that, but God looked at Jesus, who was the perfect Son of God, and counted him guilty, condemned, worthy of the punishment. It was an exchange that God made, taking our sin and our guilt and counting it on Christ's tab, and then taking Christ's perfection, his perfect obedience and righteousness, and counting that to us as our righteousness. That's why in the language of the great reformers, this has come down in the history of, of, of the church as an alien righteousness. A righteousness that we did not come up with on our own. It is the righteousness of God displayed in Jesus Christ so that that righteousness is now counted or imputed credited to our account even though we have not done anything to earn it. You say, well, how do I get a hold of that kind of righteousness that is not my own, that is an alien righteousness? How do I get a hold of that? And the answer is by faith. You believe that God did it this way. That God justifies sinners through Jesus Christ. And when we embrace Jesus by faith, we are justified by Him. So the Apostle Paul says, we have not believed in the works of the law. We have not put our confidence in the works of the law to be justified. We know that we cannot be justified by works of the law. And that's why he says, that's why we believed in order to be justified by faith in Christ. 
As one theologian put it, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in, by which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And he declares us to be righteous in his sight. Friends, this is the great truth of being justified by faith. So think of justification by faith as the legal act by which sinners are declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. Now what is it that makes us justified before God's holy judgment? It is faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith in what he accomplished for us. Why is this the only way? Why not through the works of the law? Because Jesus is the only one who actually was the only perfect human being who could ever be counted for, relied upon uh, for that perfection. No other means, no other human being, no other method can claim this perfection. Jesus was the only one who was perfect. So that's why faith in Christ alone is the only way to be justified before God. Now, how, how can this uh, be ours? I wonder if you can say with the Apostle Paul, so also we have believed in Christ. Can these words be yours today? Are these words reflecting you? See, even more than growing up in a religious background, even more importantly than trying to live a life that is right before others and before God, we must come to a place in which no matter how good or bad our past has been, we must come to a place of reliance not on ourselves but on Jesus in order to be justified by faith. I wonder what do you put your confidence in to be declared right with God? Is it your upbringing? Is it your impression that you're a good person? Is it thinking that you don't need this? That you're fine in how you are? Is it your spiritual disciplines of Bible reading, of coming to church regularly, praying, helping others? Is it even the idea of church membership, belonging to a church? None of these are sufficient means to be the basis to bring a change of status uh, in us before God. Let me speak to the youth who have grown up in our church, have heard preaching, have firm Bible lessons, have seen your parents follow Jesus, have been surrounded by what I hope has been a good environment. Not perfect, but a good environment. I want to speak to the youth in our congregation who may feel like, I got it. I know this. I think I'm good. You must come to a place, no matter how good your past has been, no matter how sheltered you have been from bad influences, you must come to a place of asking and considering, have I believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith? Have I placed my trust in Jesus in order to be made right with God? 
based on his righteousness, not mine. I wonder what's holding you back from considering that question, from answering that question. All of us, those who have been out of church or those who have grown up in church, we need to consider and remember how we are justified by faith. So watch out for inconsistencies in our gospel living. Remember how we are justified by faith in Jesus. In the remaining verses of this chapter, Paul is dealing with another error. With the assumption that if we no longer rely on the law of God for salvation, then we can live however we want to. If in the first part of this text, Paul dealt with the, with the danger of falling back into legalism, in this next part, in this final part of our text, uh, Paul deals with another danger, thinking that we can live our lives however we want to, if we no longer have to rely on the law. And the third point that we see, how do we live justified by faith? The third way, the third point we see is live by faith, the new life of Christ in you. Live by faith, the new life of Christ in you. Paul makes clear that the faith in Jesus that justifies us is not merely an intellectual faith, is not merely an intellectual experience, is not merely a one-time decision when we put our faith in Jesus to be made right with God or declared right before God. Jesus does something powerful in us. He brings us from death to life spiritually through indwelling in us. So that justifying faith in Jesus becomes living faith in Jesus. The justifying faith becomes living faith. It's a faith that brings life to our souls because Jesus himself begins living in us. How does this transition take place? From death to life. Well, let's look at the journey that Paul shows us from verse 17 to the end of the chapter. In verse 17, Paul brings up the objection that some may uh, bring up. He anticipates it and says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? He says, certainly not. Then Paul in verse 18 through 20 makes a contrast between going back to the law and living by faith in Jesus. In verse 18, he says, If I rebuilt what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. What does that mean? If I tore down the confidence in the law, this is what Paul has been doing so far, if I tore down, tear down the confidence in the law, but I rebuilt the very issue that the law addressed, namely rebellion against God, then I become a transgressor. The law of God opens my eyes to my sin. Uh, but the law of God does not let me continue to live in sin. I, it demands something of me. I cannot just keep on going uh, as if the law didn't happen. The law demands something from me. And yet the law is not able to give me what it demands. The law demands something of me, but it cannot give me 
what it calls me for. One of the theologians said it beautifully in this way. The law is in no position to give what it demands of us. All it can do is to demand, to forbid, to judge, and to condemn. So it is that man dies through the law. He's beaten to death by it and falls into God's judgment. That, then, is not the fault of the law, but of the sinner. And this death, Paul has now died so that he might live unto God. In other words, Paul embraces here on one side the goodness of the law, that the law points us to our sin and to death, and yet the law is insufficient to deal with where it leaves us, dead in our sins. But how has Paul experienced a change the change of dying to the law, and the change of living for God. He started by embracing the death that his sin triggers. Notice how he took, how this transition from life, from death to life took place. In verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, Paul embraces by faith what Jesus has done. The law demands death. Jesus has died because the law demands death for sin. But Paul realizes that in embracing death for sin, he's embracing Jesus. So he's crucified with Christ. He believes that in the death of Jesus, he himself has died. And this is what faith in Jesus implies. In the death of Jesus, I have died. In the death of Jesus, my death has taken place because his death is accounted for me so that I have died with Christ. And then he goes on to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, friends, the one who enables us to experience the transition from death to life is Jesus. When we put our faith in him, it's more than simply an acceptance that he died for us. Paul says that the faith he has placed in Jesus united Paul to Jesus in his crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ. And by the way, this is the beautiful picture that baptism represents in the immersion of a person in water. It's a visual picture of dying, of being buried with Christ. Because in putting our faith in Jesus, we don't just put our faith that Jesus exists. We actually embrace that his death is for us. And in his death, we have died. But also that in his life, we come to life as well. So that when we put our faith in Jesus, in dying to self, in relinquishing the rights of our lives, we are actually giving the rights to Jesus to live. And as he came to life, he brings us life with him into our souls. This is uh, one of the great 
misunderstood parts of putting our faith in Jesus. That we are no longer trusting and relying on our own selves to run our lives. We turn the management of our lives over to Jesus because we have died. And in turning the management to Jesus, we are confident that his life now starts to live in us. We're turning the keys to a better manager. We're turning the control to someone who can never fail. It's no longer us, but Jesus living in us. So that faith unites us to Christ both in his death and in his life. Oh, friends, in placing our faith in Jesus, he comes inside. He comes to dwell inside. He takes residence so clearly and so confidently that Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what makes a difference between living our lives from being dead, dead in the law, dead because of the law, dead because of the sin that we have lived in, and now living for God. The presence of Jesus in our lives is a difference. Can you say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, it is no longer I who live? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, but Christ lives in me? Oh, friends, if these realities are not yours today, I want to encourage you, turn to Jesus. Put your trust in him. Rely on him. Be justified before God by faith in Jesus. And when he, when you put your faith in him, he begins living in you. And you begin living justified by faith. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, is not only a doctrine to be believed, but a doctrine to be lived. If you are a believer, consider the great hope that we have in these verses. Hope helping us to live out the Christian life. We are not alone in living the Christian life. We don't live the Christian life on our own strength and resources and power, on our strategy. What helps us to live our lives for God is deepening our faith in the Lord, living in that communion with Christ. So live your life by faith in the Son of God, by remembering that He loved you, and that he gave his life for you. And now he lives in you. This is great confidence. Confidence for peace. Confidence for courage. Confidence for zeal to live in holiness. Not in any legalistic type of holiness. But in the kind of holiness that is fueled by the grace of God. Oh friends, God's son wants to live inside of us as we embrace him by faith. That's what makes us live for God. That's what enables us to have a new obedience before God. An obedience based not on the law, an obedience that, 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 that grows, flowers out of the presence of the grace of God in us through faith in Christ. Oh, friends, this is the effect of being justified by faith in Christ. We live justified 
by faith. The doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus protects us from two ditches. The ditch of legalism and the ditch of living for sin. The doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus is not merely for our heads, but for our lives. That's why the message this morning is simply this. Four words. Live justified by faith. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we praise you for the truth by which you confront us. We praise you for the truth by which you encourage us. Encourage us to remember that our living before you is only possible when we place our confidence and trust in Christ. And we praise you, Father, that you not only confront us, you not only encourage us, but you also equip us. And what you equip us with is Christ himself. This life that you call us to live, we're no longer living alone. Father, encourage us and equip us so that indeed Christ would be our life. Enable us to live in such a way in which our faith being justified through Jesus would not be just an intellectual experience, not just something we hold on to on, Mon on Sunday mornings, but something that we live out Monday through Saturday. We pray that we would be the people who are faithful to the gospel, both in our proclamation and in our living it out. In the name of Christ, we pray for his glory and honor. Amen.